Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined as always by Damon Linker of The Week, Bill Galston of The Wall Street Journal and Brookings, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. This week, we are delighted to welcome political consultant extraordinaire, uh, Mike Murphy, uh, who probably needs no introduction, but uh, has been around uh, this business for a very, very long time and also is one of the world's greatest talkers. That's my view. (laughs) It's a true gift. So welcome one and all. Mike, so glad you could be here. It is great to join you guys. Wonderful to do this. All right. Um, And for those who don't already uh, partake, uh, Mike hosts a podcast with uh, David Axelrod called called, uh, Hacks on Tap, which is uh, a wonderful uh, weekly podcast about politics as well. So um, you can check that out. Now, since we gathered last week, uh, the president traveled to Tulsa for his big kickoff rally of the post-COVID world, as he would like it to be. And uh, there were a few problems. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and so, and then today, and well, yesterday and today, we've had the drop of these huge new polling numbers, uh, including in, as of today's results showed, including in swing states. So Mike Murphy, I'm going to pitch to you first um, of what what stood out to you about these latest polls and um, maybe can you give us some advice about not completely losing our heads and getting giddy? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, that is a good point. I always believe when I'm doing a campaign in the Murphy poll, we're two points behind. So, you know, get to work. That tends to be the best poll to have in your head. Well, it, it has been quite a uh, time for the president. So, you're right. We've had a flurry of new polls that have shown him dropping. Uh, New York Times has, I think, a 14-point deficit, and I would suggest everybody take these with a with a boulder of salt. I think President Dukakis has a few polls like that framed on his wall from the summer before. But fundamentally, the polls, although they're a bit exaggerated, re- reinforce what is true. You know, it's interesting. Normally, when it, uh, talking about a presidential race of great import and excitement, I wouldn't want to go to accounting terms, but but there is a great accounting term called mark to market, where you find out beyond all the talk and all the noise what an asset is really worth. And if you step back from kind of the Rasputin mind control thing Trump has done, that he has a secret boat and he's unbeatable and, you know, Nate Silver thought he'd lose and he won. So therefore you can't believe anything about him. And you look at election days, since Donald Trump was inaugurated, the Republican Party has not had a particularly good election day. At almost every level, in almost every race, we have underperformed the normal number, and in many cases, disastrously. It's no mistake we lost the House. We've lost, I think, nine or ten governorships, a bunch of state legislative seats. So when when people vote, they tend to be punishing Republicans since the advent of Donald Trump. So what has happened with coronavirus is the things that were propping up Donald Trump and national polls of performance on the economy or perception thereof, a lot of those are falling away. And unlike most politicians who can use a moment of crisis to raise their standing by uh, acting in a 
mature way. A lot of governors have seen their popularity move up during this, despite the challenges. Trump's hurt himself by being Trump in the spotlight on an issue that touches everybody. So I think the the bad news for Trump in the polling is true. He's in a cul-de-sac of kind of grumpy old white guys and Republican primary voters, not enough to win the general. But he Biden is not defined. Trump is. And there's a lot of campaign coming at Biden. And the whole Trump campaign will be about making it about Biden. So I would I would feel happy, but not complacent. Uh, and I would cut these numbers in half uh, in my mm, head. Interesting. Um, Bill, one of the things that did emerge from this polling was that while Trump's approval has been declining, Biden hasn't gained that much of uh, in terms of approval that he is still seen if you sort of strip everything away he is just seen as the acceptable alternative he is not there's there isn't very much enthusiasm for him and I don't think there's too much um, sense of who he is is that a problem do you think or a potential one uh potentially yes uh but I think we have to look at that problem against the backdrop of what a catastrophe the past three months have been for the president politically. You know, I went back and took a look at some numbers. On April 1st, uh, his job approval average had gone up to almost 46%. And and the gap between approval and disapproval was only three points. Uh, that was his apex. As of this morning, uh, his disapproval numbers have gone up by five points, and his approval numbers have gone down by five points. And if you if you apply the same metric to the head-to-head contests. Uh, Biden is up three and Trump is down three, so that the margin uh, in the head-to-heads has tripled since the middle of April, from three points to about nine points. The other thing that I see is that this surge for Biden, decline for Trump, has been remarkably uniform across the country. I just took a look at all of the swing states. including some new entrants into that column. Uh, And in virtually every case, uh, Trump was doing about seven or eight points worse, you know, if you look at the margins, uh, Mm -hmm. than than he did in 2016. You know, and the perfect example of that is Ohio, which he carried by eight in 2016 and now is dead even with Biden. And that pattern is replicated just about every place. So we are talking about a really national phenomenon. It's not sectoral. It's not confined to a particular demographic. uh, And it's not particularly regional either. Uh, If the election were held tomorrow, uh, Trump would lose and lose badly and take down the Republican Senate with him. But as Mike said- yeah, <laughs> <laughs> early <laughs> voting. Early <laughs> voting. <laughs> so you know, I just you know, I think that all of Mike's cautionary uh, uh, notes are in order, but this is a larger lead than Hillary Clinton ever enjoyed. Uh, yeah, some of these numbers are outside the margin of error, but if we take Mike's um, uh, guidance that we should cut it in half, then they may not be. 
but um, Linda, one of the interesting things that you can tease out of these numbers is uh, that people radically, that, that, that Trump has a radically wrong idea about what the country is thinking vis-a-vis race relations and the Floyd protests. Um, that, uh, that, that rather than really being concerned about law and order and, and, you know, um, disorder in the streets and looting and so forth, which is his focus and being the man in control, firm hand and so forth, actually majorities of the people believe that it's more important to show sympathy for the cause for that drove people into the streets in the first place, even if they may go overboard, some of the protesters may go overboard. And that's true among white voters, which is really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But, you know, I'm a perpetual worrywart. Um, I will note that uh, these polls are all of registered voters, not of likely voters, which always makes me more nervous. But what I am worried is that I have never seen Democrats, uh, when presented the opportunity, uh, to avoid snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. And what I worry about when I see the protests is I think you're absolutely right that Americans do understand that it is difficult to be an African-American in this society and that it's not just about history, um, that even though we have uh, made, I think, a lot of progress, uh, you know, we haven't reached the promised land yet. And uh, color still matters, uh, and it matters in ways that are sometimes uh, indefinable. Uh, But, you know, there's no question that when we saw that tape of the uh, police officers with the knee on the uh, on the neck of, of George Floyd, he was being treated uh, as less than human, and uh, this is deeply disturbing to most Americans. I think they want to react. However, uh, we have now seen the protests moving into a new phase, and this is what I'm worried about. With well, we're gonna I'm gonna ask you to hold off on that okay. for our next segment because we okay. are planning to talk about the yeah. The last okay, so I so so I so I won't I won't get into that yet, but I uh, I am um, I am more worried uh, that these polls, these early polls, um, first of all, they they don't. The thing that worries me most about these polls is that I don't think we do get a sense that um, most Americans really uh, have a good idea about who Joe Biden is. I mean, he's just familiar to them. He's been sort of in the background, but he's got to give them a reason to vote for him, not just to vote against Donald Trump. And his campaign, I don't think, has yet defined that clearly. And I think he needs to do a better job of that. So, Damon, a lot of people say this. I mean, look, I, I don't have any problem saying that I would vote for a minimally sentient human over Trump. And um, but but most a lot of voters feel that they they have to be they have to be pulling the lever with enthusiasm and a sense that they're making history or that they're doing some wonderful thing. Um, do, what do you think? I mean, do you think it's not enough to be, you know, to, to get rid of Trump that, that we all, that, that Biden needs to gin up enthusiasm? And I, and then if, if that, if you do think the answer to that is yes, how does he do that? Well, I think the main reason you need enthusiasm is so that people actually show up to vote on election day. Other than that, it doesn't matter. Um, you just want people to get up that day and have the wherewithal and the initiative to actually go pull the lever. And, you know, where I live, that usually takes 10 minutes, but uh, you drive into Philly 
near my house, about uh, 10 minutes away, and there it can take hours because uh, our system is pretty unjust in these things. And you go to uh, an inner city neighborhood that's largely African-American, and they're, they're going to be staffed much more poorly. There are going to be a lot fewer places to vote. So you need to get the numbers up uh, for Biden to actually make good on all of these polling uh, uh, results. You need people to actually be motivated to vote. So the question, I think, more than whether are people really motivated to vote for Biden, I think equally important is are people really motivated to get Donald Trump out of the White House? And that I see sort of as a given by this point. I think it underlies uh, some of what Mike was talking about with how Republicans have just seen a series of losses in, in not only the midterms, but in, in all these special elections across the country ever since the 2016 election, showing that whenever voters are given the opportunity, they're showing up and they're voting against the Republicans because they are angry that this man won the presidency and don't think he or his party really belongs in power. So I'm sort of willing to, to say, you know, maybe the rule is you want motivated voters for your candidate. But in this case, as, as has so often been the case over the last four years, it's almost like the polarities have reversed. We're in an era of negative partisanship. And what matters is that people want Trump out of there. I would also want to, at the end, just throw in one more data point on top of what Bill was saying, uh, showing that Biden is in a good place right now. Um, uh, Nate Silver pointed out this morning that uh, Biden in, in, in a lot of polling averages is at about 50% versus Trump in a whole bunch of polls. Uh, the only, uh, people who running for president have been at 50% at this stage this early were Nixon in 72 and Reagan in 84. So again, is it a, a lock? Absolutely not. Uh, that's a dangerous thing. That could keep uh, turnout down if people become convinced, ah, this is just going to happen. I don't right. have to show up. So yeah. by all means, everyone be scared. Yeah, yeah. Got <laughs> it. Be very afraid. But right. I do think Biden is in a remarkably strong position right now. So um, mindful of Linda's admonition about this being registered voters, not likely voters, um, still... Another thing that you can detect from these polls that have come out in the last week is that there has been huge movement among the people who are supposedly not, don't exist anymore in politics, Mike Murphy. Um, you've, I, I can't count the number of times in the last few years when I've heard so-called experts tell us there's no such thing as a swing voter. <laughs> they just don't exist, right? So what, what do you, what's your view about that? Oh, you know, the, the, Political punditry is so full of kind of these crowd think myths. Uh, of course, there are ticket splitters. The, the fundamental function of voters, many of them, not all, is to change their minds. And with time, voters do adapt and move. And, you know, the, the reason that Trump has been such a political failure for the Republican Party on Election Day is fundamentally we've lost the suburbs. Uh, we've lost college-educated white voters that we used to totally dominate, particularly women, uh, who have been repelled by Trump and, and other things. So so voters do move. And I think a lot of the, the fight of this election, I, I agree with Bill, if the election will tomorrow be a landslide 
wipeout. But, you know, we we now have a campaign. Think of it for Joe Biden, like 300 car washes to go through. And while the election always wants to be a referendum on keep or fire the incumbent, and Trump, of course, is exactly in that position. People want to fire him. Trump, uh, excuse me, Biden has to have kind of a minimum sufficient campaign to keep it on Trump, and he is less defined, so therefore a bit more vulnerable. But yeah, if, if Biden can just freeze the clock, hold the suburbs, and exploit kind of the weird thing that Biden has, the good news in the early polling that we're in the middle of right now, that he is overperforming with older voters, which are older mm-hmm. white voters, which are normally a, a good Republican constituency. But if he can if he can hold the suburbs and he can keep super performing with older white voters, he, he's got Trump. And so the question is, will anything happen in campaign, racial tension, some Biden attack, some miracle Trump brain transplant where he gets better, which I think Trump is the atomic clock of Trump. So I don't think he can help himself there and improve himself. You know, the the, the advantage is Biden. But the, all this punditry, I, I just want to very quickly hit on something I think you said earlier, because this is one of my favorite bugaboos. There is this obsession now in political journalism, and that, of course, infects political kind of CW, that we have to treat base voters like swing voters. Base voters are very predictable. They have huge party loyalty. Uh, You can get into all kinds of fight inside a primary with them. But once there's a general election, it's a huge organizing principle. A base voter will vote for a box of hammers with an R or D over it. Trump's problem is he's always trying to win the Republican primary. That's why he's off in that corner and has this vulnerability, because he never reaches out to try to expand his deal. So when somebody votes, you don't get points for a happy voter. (laughs) You get points for a vote. And when I was doing governor races across the country in, in purple states, and in, even in you know light red states, the rule book was put the base under a little stress, knowing you had them, and put your energy into the accretive eight or nine more percent you need to win. So this pandering to the base thing is very popular. It's based on the idea that in presidential elections, there's a danger nobody will show up. I, I, I will be stunned if base Democratic voters don't show up against Donald Trump. Uh, so it, in my view, it's totally wrong thing, but it's caught on. And such a meter of the election that you have to spend all your time in each party pandering to your the voters you get for free. Uh, and I, I think it's it's totally wrong as strategy and as reality. Right. Well, and clearly Trump has done nothing but that. Totally. Uh, and and look at the position that that he finds himself in. Um, Bill Galston, are we going to know who the victor is on the evening of November 3rd? And if not, are we prepared for that? Uh, no, we won't. And no, we aren't. And that is what scares me most about the general election. I mean, we've already seen in statewide races, uh, the, the consequence of this huge shift towards mailing ballots as opposed to day of and in-person voting. Uh, and unless the election is a total blowout the way it would be uh, if it were held tomorrow, uh, we are very likely to go to bed uh, early in the morning of November 4th, if indeed we're able to sleep, which I won't be, uh, not knowing not, not knowing the outcome. And what's scary about that is that I think the president has already clearly signaled his intention to uh, cast doubt on the legitimacy of the election based on mail-in ballots. 
which she has repeatedly denounced as a fount of fraud. Uh, and uh, I think there is zero chance that he won't play that card on election night uh, if it's close enough to make a difference. Are we prepared for that? No. And let me tell you what I think is absolutely necessary. Between now and election day, there needs to be an effort to bring together senior leaders from both political parties, former Senate majority leaders, former presidents, uh, into a very visible defend the electoral process coalition prepared to stand up with one voice and say, this is a legitimate election uh, and efforts to delegitimize it for whatever reason uh, are a danger to our democracy. Democrats Democrats screaming that at the top of their lungs will make no difference. It takes senior Republicans to do right. the same thing. Well, but it seems to me wouldn't it would require that this consortium or or whatever get together before the election. Of course. Have a big press conference and say, you know, we're watching this and and this is we have to be prepared for the fact that it's not going to be decided on the evening of the third and so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, it can't can't be done afterwards. <laughs> Everybody stay calm. This election was fair. You know, that won't work. Uh, Mona. Yeah. Mona, may I add just one point to this? Uh there is a task of public education here, which needs to be an all-hands-on-deck operation, including the media. Rather than rushing to get at the front of the queue to call states, the media in advance and on the night of need to state clearly what the facts are, namely that the counting of mail-in ballots is inherently a slow process and will not be completed in all probability till a day or two or even three days after the election itself. Right, right. Mona, uh, back in the good old days uh, when the United States was the paragon of democracy and everybody looked to us uh, for how to do it right, uh, the United States used to send election observers uh, into elections in places that were, for example, new democracies and Poland and throughout Eastern Europe after the fall of the of the um, uh, Soviet Union. And, you know, you wonder if maybe that's not something that, you know, should be put together is a kind of bipartisan group that says we're actually going to go in and observe and uh, some organization being able to, it has to be bipartisan, has to be seen as uh, is absolutely fair, but to try to give confidence uh, that election, uh, the election is in fact fair and honest. Yeah, it's awfully late for that though. Um, I mean, it would, I, I suppose it could be done, but it would have to be done fast. Um, you'd need to get people in every precinct and, um, you know, you need to get one of each in every precinct, right? A, de- a Democrat and a Republican. I was once a poll watcher, by the way, in my first first ever election that I participated in in New York City. I was voting for Ronald Reagan, and um, they, you know, they needed a poll watcher in each precinct of one from each party. And since they were really scraping the bottom of the barrel in Manhattan looking for Republicans in 1980. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, uh, I my, my name popped up. And so I went down and I spent the evening after the polls closed uh, watching along with a Democrat. Actually, there were four of us because New York has actually four parties on the ballot. But anyway, um, yeah, we had to we had to um, watch and make sure that the, everything was on the up and up. That sh- seems like it should be the normal thing. One would you know, suppose, but um, okay. Does anybody have any uh, quick evaluations of any of the Senate races? Things that might surprise us. Um, th- things to be looking for. Anybody? Well, there are a couple that I think a year ago handicappers would have said, "Oh, it'll be fine." You know, there's always been this confirmation bubble within the Republican world that's just been ignoring the the price of Trump politically. So people thought Joni Ernst would, you know, walk to reelection in Iowa. She is in a very tough race uh, under by a point or two in a pretty weak position for an incumbent. She's in a state that has Republican, you know, leaning. So she'll have tailwind, but no doubt at all. She's in a competitive race. Uh, Arizona, I think Mark Kelly's in a commanding position there and people always knew it would be a fight, but I think people thought McSally could do it. And, you know, the North Carolina race is tight. And, of course, the Cory Gardners of the world uh, in the purple states are uh, very much in trouble, though Hickenlooper stumbled a bit. So we're, we're, we'll see what happens there. And the only one who's had a bit of a comeback in the early and therefore soft polling uh, has been Susan Collins up in Maine, who is doing the classic uh, survive by being Senator Pothole campaign. A lot of talk about, you know, uh, paycheck protection uh, uh, money coming into state and all the uh, dealing with the COVID economic pain. So she's been able to, with a lot of television, kind of click her way back up to mid to high 40s. I, I still would bet against her based on if we see numbers, anything like this 10 point stuff coming, it'll it'll wipe her out. But but she's had a little bit of life, to be fair. Uh, but I, look, I think it's easily a 50-50 bet or maybe even a little better. Uh, unless Biden really implodes that the Democrats can take the Senate. Right. Uh, and and the Republicans uh, stand to pick up the seat in Alabama, or likely to, right? Likely the to. Doug Not Jones certain, thing. but yeah. likely. Okay. All right. Um, so one of the great hopes uh, of the left is that, you know, the old prayer, you know, oh, Lord, let my enemies go too far. And um, in some of the demonstrations and some of the protests about George Floyd, we have now, as Linda was saying, we've now moved into the phase of toppling statues. And some of them have been really quite absurd. We have had uh, a statue of Hans Christian Hegg, who I don't think most of us knew about before now, but anyway, he was a, um, a he was an abolitionist and he fought for the Union. Um and uh, died actually in the Battle of Chickamauga. They tore his statue down. There have been attacks on statues of George Washington and Ulysses Grant and uh, many others. Um, this is, I think, a, a great hope, isn't it, uh, Damon, for Republicans that uh, that there will be a perception that the, the left has gone too far again. Yeah, and I, I worry about that and, and my own feelings about it are, complicated because I sort of viscerally dislike it myself so much that I, you know, sort of uh, sit here, you know, rubbing my hands together, like, oh, you're going to get your comeuppance. You're going too far. You're going to pay a price, even though, of course, I want Trump to go down in a a ball of flames. I, I have complicated feelings about all of it. But I've been struck by how the polls, at least so far, are showing 
really very, very strong support for the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, even even three years ago, uh, Black Lives Matter was not a particularly uh, popular uh, motto or movement uh, among especially white voters, including many white uh, liberal voters. And yet, since the Floyd killing and uh, the kind of universal recognition of this, of how appalling it was, there's been a lot of support for protests, but also it has not wavered much, even with uh, a lot of the violence that we saw uh, in, in, you know, where the protests became riots about three weeks ago or so. Um, now, maybe some of that was because Trump so much overdid it in his, in what happened in Lafayette Park outside the White House. And so that kind of created a buffer for some of those sentiments. Uh, but it, I, there still is very little evidence of wavering. So um, it might be that uh, people are in a, in a little bit of a generous mood to say, yeah, some people are overdoing it, but uh, the, the core conviction that there's a lot of unjust injustice in the country still about race-related issues means we're not going to get too whipped up about a handful of people who are going too far. That would, you know, doesn't strike me as a particularly typical result in public opinion, but it, it uh, so far I'm not really seeing much of a backlash to any of this, which surprises me. Linda, the um, certainly it must be good for the protesters that the initial uh, violence has subsided. Uh, there were there were riots in certain places. There was looting in certain places, and uh, that has really subsided. And the overwhelming majority have been peaceful. So uh, now the 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 phase we're in now, though, is in the somewhat indiscriminate tearing down of statues and in which, you know, I agree with Damon, you know, if you want to remove a statue from your community, you should go to the local town council, get your neighbors together, have a petition, you know, do it the right way, um, not by a mob. Um, but, uh, but, but nevertheless, um, the, uh, the, the, the moment that I think you were about to talk about before when I cut you off was that not only are we seeing uh, statues being toppled, but we are also seeing a kind of Maoism um, in in certain um, liberal precincts and certain uh, progressive newspapers and other places. There's the case of the data scientist who I think Damon brought up a couple weeks ago, David Shore, who simply posted something saying that peaceful protests were much more politically effective than violence and he lost his job. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there have been a number of examples like this, including the ones we've already discussed about the New York times and, and Philadelphia Inquirer editors. Um, so is uh, a lot of people are saying, well, which is worse? Is it worse to have these kind of woke contests in the liberal precincts um, or is it worse to have uh, a president who inspires this, you know, a, a terrible racial insensitivity? Um, well, I, I, you know, obviously I, I come down on the side of, of the latter. Uh, however, I do think that there could be a tipping point. You know, it's interesting. There was a, a lot of um, not, not a whole lot of attention, but in Washington, D.C., there is a monument called the Freedmen's Monument in Lincoln Park. Um, and it shows uh, Abraham Lincoln with uh, a, 
an enslaved man who um, he's sort of lifting up. The, the man is, is down on his knees. Um, and I would recommend to our listeners to go back and read the speech uh, by Frederick Douglass uh, on the unveiling of that monument. It's, it was written in 1876. And, is, you know, one of the things that I think many of us forget when we think about Lincoln, um, we forget that he was a mixed bag. And uh, Douglas goes through his entire history, um, some of the less flattering things uh, about uh, Abraham Lincoln. But at the end of the day, he says that we have to, we, even though we've not, um, you know, forgotten that the president was, you know, was tardy in coming to the cause, that nonetheless, uh, it was important to honor uh, what he did, and the fact that in the at the end of the day, he did in fact issue the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. He did in fact uh, preserve the Union and fight against slavery in the South. And um, and I think that's what's sort of missing is that you know we 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 like to you know not to use a, a fraught analogy, but we do see these things in black and white. Um, and our history is mixed. And uh, some of these individuals do have a mixed history. Uh, but I think what we need to try to, uh, uh, you know, if, if uh, the African-American population wants to get white Americans to understand their pain and their hurt, uh, we also have to have some recognition in the African-American community that, um, you know, you're, you can't tear down the statues of, of you know, every uh, slave-holding president uh, of the United States, that this is, this ends up being uh, simply viewed by most Americans as un-American, as anti-American. And I think that's, that's the danger. By the way, the um, speech that Frederick Douglass delivered in front of a stellar crowd, including, you know, the Speaker of the House and many other dignitaries when it was unveiled in 1876 is the very first part of David Blight's excellent biography of Frederick Douglass, uh, which I just, I'll throw in a plug. Um, That's how I got familiar with it, I will tell you. Uh, I, yeah, and, I, and, yeah. I, and I actually had a house very near there and used to go to the park all the time and had no idea about its history, but I, I learned it from David Blight. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, just just between us, and our audience. Um, when I look at that statue, I, it gives me the creeps, yeah, right? I mean, right. It's, it's, it's right. Cause it shows Lincoln who by, of course was long dead when it was erected, but shows Lincoln standing up and, and at, yeah. down on one knee is an African American man, you know, who's sort of being grateful for the gift of Liberty. And it does, it is lacking in dignity for the uh, slave. And I, and I don't, you know, I, I understand why people look at that and say, you know, is that the kind of image that we want now? And so it, you're right. It does require um, either. I mean, I wouldn't be again, again, as I say, I wouldn't object to taking it down if it were done in a, in a thoughtful way, lawfully. Um, but, uh, or but have, it replaced. Have, have it or, replaced, or have it replaced you know, right. sure. by something, but, but more make sure fitting. that people know the history and, right. uh, and, and know a little bit about, it. yeah, sure. Okay. Um, if anybody else wants to weigh in on that, uh, they're invited to do so. Otherwise, we can turn now to a topic that we have neglected uh, for the last several weeks because there was so much other news, but uh, namely the virus, which um, had been drifting down, although not nearly fast enough. But the U.S. is leading the world in... Um, 
in coronavirus cases and deaths. And we saw a big spike in the last few days. Uh, the largest number of new cases was reported yesterday um, since April 25th. And, um, you know, if you look at a chart of deaths from COVID and compare countries, we are by far the worst. Um, so, Bill, uh, do, do you have a sense that this is um, something that is going to affect the election? And uh, if so, in what way? It is now is now moving into the parts of the country that are considered to be Trump-friendly. Uh, if these trends continue, uh, they will affect the election uh, in a number of ways. First of all, Trump's ratings on handling uh, the COVID-19 pandemic which are already miserable, could easily get worse because the states that are now experiencing the full brunt for the first time uh, may decide that their early enthusiasm for Trump's uh, opposition uh, to tough measures uh, was, was misplaced. Second, and equally important, there is a direct relationship between the pace of the pandemic and the pace of the economic recovery. And nothing could slam the door definitively on a V-shaped recovery on which the president is pinning a lot of his hopes more than partial or complete re, uh, re-closings of the American economy in a number of states that have reopened. Uh, and This could also affect the political geography of the election uh, by giving uh, Biden a boost in the Sunbelt states, many of which until very recently uh, have been uh, not exactly spared, but certainly spared the full brunt. If If you look at the map right now, the hardest hit state is Arizona which is one of the critical swing states. It's a state where Biden has been doing better and better in the past few weeks. And, uh, you know, and as Mike pointed out, uh, Mark Kelly's huge lead over Martha McSally uh, could very well bring Biden across the finish line, sort of a reverse coattails effect. So, uh, yeah, this is not only humanly relevant, but it's politically relevant in, in a number of important ways. Mike, in addition to not being able to in any way organize a coherent government response or help with the supply of PPE or get a nationwide um, regimen of testing going, uh, the president, uh, whose only instinct is to fight, uh, made mask wearing a cultural battle so that now around the country you find that people are they're, they're struggling over whether people should wear masks whether it's going to be seen as politically fraught to ask people to wear masks the um, bill mentioned Arizona the governor of Arizona at first uh, Ducey at first 
told mayors and local officials that they could not uh, require people to wear masks. He's he's backed away from that. Um, but uh, but that that's an amazing moment that we're at, isn't it? Well, you know, Trump's narcissism knows no bounds, and you're right. He's obsessed with appearing strong despite being so weak. And this became kind of a symbol. Now, I, I want to. Part of it is what Bill was talking about, and I've been obsessed with this. We've been talking about it on Hacks on Tap for weeks, which is, you know, the distribution of vote in American presidential elections is highly concentrated. There are about oh, 3,100 counties in the U.S., and the Democrats get the vast bulk of their vote out of only 10% of those counties. But they're big counties, they're urbanized, they're full of blue voters. And those were the places Detroit, New Orleans, New York City, San Francisco, where COVID hit first. At least it was measured first. The emergency rooms took the hit, particularly New York and northern New Jersey. And so in those places, you had biological pain and fear, and you, of course, had economic pain from the shutdown. Now, out in the sparser parts of the country that are much more red, you had the economic pain in many places, but you didn't have the biological pain. And now, as the virus is showing up in places that before were like, what's all the fuss about? I don't know anybody who's sick. Why do I have to wear a mask? Like, you know, um, I'm one of these wimpy snowflakes from the East Coast. Well, now COVID's in their world. And, and Trump sensed that early divide. Because remember, he's a base politician. There are no swing voters in his head. There are two armies, my army and their army. So their army's the enemy. And he they're all in New York City. And my army are the good people who follow me on Twitter and watch Fox. So Trump felt that they weren't feeling the biological pain, only the economic pain. So he kind of went for the culture war, this mass thing as a symbol. But now I can imagine they're sitting around the Trump, you know, campaign headquarters, swilling booze, probably. It's not a fun job. Candidate's crazy, doesn't listen to him, thinking, great, our new slogan is vote for Trump, get sick. Um, <laughs> you know, it, 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 this must be a nightmare for them. So I think what you're going to see now as we move through the summer, depending on how good we are in these places where it's surging of having tests and having social distancing and getting people culturally to understand the mask is in everybody's interest, do we tamp it down or does it really start spiking in places where Trump voters will now feel economic and biological pain through his incompetence? So I'm with Bill on this. It is trouble for Trump, this part two of it. And if it really surges into September and October, right before the election, um, the Trump incompetence issue will dominate the agenda, that and the failing economy. Uh, Damon, one of the um, cross tabs, as these as the political junkies like to say, uh, that came out of the recent polling was that uh, Trump still maintains uh, majority support of white voters, I think between the ages of 45 and 60, but he is now trailing Biden with white voters 65 and older. Um, he is behind Biden in Florida, which is a must win. Well, I don't I never know how to calculate these things because there's so many moving parts, but it's a it's a critical state. Let's put it that way uh, for him. And Florida is one of the places that is seeing spikes now. It is. Um, I, I don't actually recall seeing the age distribution of uh, positive cases in Florida, although I know I have seen them in Arizona 
and I believe in California, where uh, it is much younger than it was in the Northeast and the other places where the virus spiked originally. So that, uh, you know, at first you might think that uh, Trump is losing older voters because they feel vulnerable. And that probably is the core of it, uh, because, you know, all the statistics show that you're much more likely uh, to to have a worse case and to die from the disease if you're uh, older, especially above age seventy, so that would be a good reason to say, hey, you know, this is this is a real threat to me, and you're downplaying this. So that could be a big part of it. Although it is interesting that it, what is happening now is the actual the rates of death are are still much lower than one might expect during such a large spike because younger people are getting it and they're less likely to die. But one thing I wanted to add to the conversation, it's not so much a disagreement uh, with what Bill and and, uh, Mike were saying, which all was very smart, but I do think that it's important to not always think in terms of Trump. I do think he helped to encourage the kind of mask wearing as a culture war trope thing. But it's also true that Trump is embedded in a broader cultural and political uh, context. And I'm struck in on my interactions online when people kind of come at me about how, why are we wearing masks? We don't have to wear masks. This is just stupid. Masks are disgusting. I'm not going to do that. Let me do what I want. Those arguments are not saying they have nothing to do with Trump in particular. They're being said on Fox, on Rush Limbaugh, and then just in a kind of ambient cultural libertarianism that prevails across much of this country that I think is more a a source of the the terrible results that we're seeing, or at least a big part of it in comparing uh, how things are going here as opposed to in other countries. I mean, for instance, another huge spike happening in California, the bluest of all blue states, completely dominated by the Democratic Party, is there along with Arizona, Florida, uh, Texas. Those are all the big states right now for virus spread. And it's happening in bipartisan terms. And that's because all states have a certain number of voters who just say, don't tell me what to do, even if you say it's for public health. I'm going to make my own decision, get out of my face. And that's a bigger problem uh, that our country is going to have to reckon with post-Trump, I think. Yeah, um, you do have to wonder um, whether this is a change in the national character, you know. Um, the, the, the nation that, you know, planted victory gardens and, you know, collected their, their you know, scrap metal and so forth for the war effort in World War II um, and, and now saying they won't even put a cloth mask over their face for the common good, um, you could spin a little story there of declining um, character on the part of the people. On the other hand, I'm sure there were a hell of a lot of people who misbehaved during World War II also. <laughs> well, well, you know, Mona, let's also raise an issue that is uncomfortable to think about, uh, but does really tie into the kind of paroxysm we're seeing right now on the subject of race. The people who get COVID and suffer most from it and who die in higher numbers tend to be Hispanic and black. 
And uh, one wonders uh, whether or not that has some impact on the way, particularly in these deep red states with white voters, they look around, they say, okay, well, the people who are dying work at the chicken plant. They're not like us. Uh, You know, there have already been questions raised about whether the culture of certain people, uh, whether their hygiene habits are somehow different. Uh, So there is an element in this of, of, of thinking well, this is somebody else's problem. This isn't going to really affect us. And there's also another problem, another bias that I think uh, impacts the way people are reacting, and that is a kind of anti-scientific bias. These are the same people who refuse to look uh, in any objective way at the data on climate science. Um, You know, they have an ideological view about the climate uh, not that there aren't, you know, climate extremists uh, on on the left side as well. There are, but I think these two things uh, sort of play into each other, and it's one of the reasons that you get those uh, very white audiences in Tulsa and in uh, in Arizona, and they don't think that they are really going to get hit by this. This is somebody else's problem. Well, uh, yeah, I, what, what I'm worried about is, um, that from everything we've seen, um, the people who are the most in the areas that were first affected by the virus is that the people who are the most vulnerable are those who are either over age 70, have severe weight problems, uh, or have other, you know, health, uh, issues. And, um, I'm sorry to say this, but in the American South, you have a much higher percentage of people of both races and all races, I guess you could put it, who are, um, who fit into that category, who, you know, are not in the greatest shape. And so it could be, uh, it could be pretty devastating and not just to people who are Hispanic or black or, you know, so we'll see. Um, All right. Uh, let us move on to our final segment, which is something that we wish to draw attention to. Uh, Mike Murphy, what's yours? Well, I want to get back to Florida for just a minute. That is a state that people had thought Trump had lock on. Having done a zillion campaigns there, including both the Jeb's uh, election wins, I didn't believe it. And so we, after Tulsa, well, before Tulsa, but we released it afterward, my compatriots at Republican Voters Against Trump, uh, ourvet.org, we asked the voters of Jacksonville, Florida, what they thought about a Trump convention coming there. We had a pollster talk to 600 of them in a county of a million people that leans Republican. Trump narrowly won it, but is critical to winning Florida. First, Trump's losing the county by eight points to Joe Biden, which is amazing. And second... By 10 points, they don't want the Trump convention. Even a third of Republicans said, please, no Trump convention. So the uh, the COVID worries are alive and well in Florida, and it's becoming a big political liability for the president as he tries to go inflict an ego convention on Jacksonville. There was a second poll by a local university, showed even worse numbers than we did. So Florida is definitely in play, and that could be a game changer uh, in the election and really help Biden. Interesting. Bill Galston. Well, I have long believed uh, that the journalist and political analyst Ron Brownstein was doing some of the very best work putting together demographic changes with political trends. And he is outdoing himself in 2020. Uh, His most recent piece for CNN on the 
cross-racial nature uh, of, the, of, of the protests uh, as a leading indicator for a new cross-racial alliance in American politics is must-read, in my opinion. Okay. Linda? Well, I want to uh, appoint uh, our listeners to an article that appeared in the online publication Public Discourse, which is the journal of the Witherspoon Institute. This is a conservative outfit. Uh, the article is by Lyman Stone, and it's called Above the Law, the Data Are In on Police, Killing, and Race. And I found most interesting in it, is this a real um, attack on police unions and on police killings, which, according to uh, Stone, are much more prevalent than we understand, that there are 1,700 people a year who die at the hands of the police. That includes everyone, you know, including people who may have had weapons in their hand. But nonetheless, it is far larger than any other country. Uh, and it has been quite steady and for a long time. And Stone makes a very um, compelling case that this is a serious problem. He describes uh, police unions, he says they're teacher unions, but with tanks and endless get-out-of-jail-free cards. That's, yeah, high time we, uh, high time we dealt with that. Um, Damon. Uh, yes. Um, one of my beats, I guess, is uh, keeping up on the woke revolution sweeping through American newsrooms, uh, which uh, I don't really approve of, um, though I share uh, some political aims with the people who are behind it. Uh, one of the strangest incidents of this a few weeks ago was uh, the Washington, I guess it was a week ago, the Washington Post ran a 3,000 word expose of a random woman who is not a public figure who attended a Halloween party in blackface trying to, to make a kind of political point. Everyone seems to have agreed it was a, a really distasteful costume. People told her at the time she apologized and so forth. Well, the, the Post ran a 3,000-word expose about this two years later, just last week, uh, and ended up getting this random woman fired from her job because of it. Uh, pretty much everyone agreed that this was an atrocious uh, thing, but uh, no one really understood what was going on at the Post behind the scenes. And now Josh Barrow and Olivia Nuzzi have written a very good piece in New York Magazine titled, Why Did the Washington Post Get This Woman Fired? In which they really dig into this, interview a bunch of people at the Post and discover that pretty much everyone they talk to thinks this was a terrible thing that was done. Uh, but And no one will defend it, but yet the Post has not retracted or issued any kind of a statement backing away from having done this deed. So it's an important uh, moment in the, uh, again, the ideological revolutions uh, coursing through American journalism. So it's a good piece. Yeah, I, I second that. And I would just stress that this woman, however poor judgment she showed, what she was doing, the costume was, she was making fun of Megyn Kelly, who had done something, who had said something on, on her show about not understanding what the big deal was about blackface or some such thing. And so this gal shows up at a Halloween party with her face darkened and she says, oh, I'm Megyn Kelly, get it? That's the joke. 
bad joke, but still it wasn't, she wasn't doing the blackface as a way of showing disrespect, whatever. I mean, it's just, it's, you're right. It's ridiculous. And two years later, they, they run a long piece, uh, uh, about the fact because it was at the home of a cartoonist who does work for the Washington Post, whatever. I mean, it was kind of a little excessive. I agree. Um, okay. Mine is a recommendation from the Atlantic, uh, a piece by George Packer about our esteemed attorney general, William Barr. It's called failure is a contagion. And he talks about Barr's relentless efforts to twist the law to serve his boss and uh, ending with the most recent effort to fire the uh, the uh, U.S. attorney at the Southern District of New York, which actually backfired in, in his face, partly because he and Trump couldn't get their stories straight and were contradicting each other. And but in any event, um, it's a um, it's an important piece because uh, I have to say, for me personally, when I heard Bill Barr. I was very glad to see Jeff Sessions go, even though I think in some ways Jeff Sessions showed more backbone than some of the other people that Trump had in his orbit. But nevertheless, um, I didn't like his policies as attorney general. I didn't like the fact that he was separating children from their parents, which was an outrage, etc. But um, when Bill Barr was testifying before Congress and uh, saying all of these wonderful, sane and responsible grown up kinds of things about his dedication to the rule of law. And of course, no, he would never uh, he would never distort that to, to just for political ends and so on. And I thought, well, OK, we have George H.W. Bush's former attorney general here. We've got somebody who's a person of integrity with experience. This will be much more stable. And, um, and just as a joke, I said to my friend Jay Nordlinger at the time with who I, with whom I used to do a podcast, I said, and so I imagined him leaving the hearing room and picking up the phone in his car and saying, well done, we sure gave them a, you know, snow job. <laughs> and <clears throat> it's uh, bitterly do I reflect that that's pretty much true. That's, that's what happened. And it's all detailed in George Packer's uh, piece going through chapter and verse about the way Barr has conducted himself as attorney general. It's a disgrace. It's a good article. I recommend it. Thank you all for listening to Beg to Differ. Thank you, Mike Murphy, for sharing your wisdom. And uh, we hope you all will join us again next week. 